0: One thing that I find I continue to learn as I mature in my relationships, right? As I increasingly get to know people better, especially in my closest relationship, is that I'm increasingly able to take them charitably and appreciate their good intentions, right? Even though I may not fully agree in how these intentions are expressed through their actions. Let me show you what I mean, okay? I see this mostly in the relationship that I have with my parents. You see, my parents come from a generation that believe that their responsibility goes beyond just ensuring my survival, but actually doing whatever they can to make sure I'm the best that I can be, right? Like they thought it was really on them for me to flourish, and if I didn't, it means that they failed. So That means, as I was growing up, there were a lot of rules, a lot of lessons and discipline, a lot of restrictions, a lot of expectations, therefore... There is a lot of pressure. But my parents firmly believe that pressure creates diamonds. Unfortunately for them, I wasn't a particularly compliant child. So I perceived their efforts to love me and parent me unto the good pretty poorly, right? Which made my relationship with them pretty difficult in the past, especially as a teenager. The rules they gave me felt like chains that held me back instead of boundaries to protect me. Their expectations felt like burdens on my back instead of like realistic targets to shoot for, and their advice and input feels like an insult to my character and intelligence instead of loving guidance that they intended it to be. Consequently, I saw them as my number one killjoys instead of my number one supporters. Thankfully, though, as I get older and the possibility of having a child is more imminent to me Now, and since I can understand much more about what it feels like in their shoes, because I actually have to be an adult myself right now, I don't look back at what they've done with nearly as much resentment and bad feelings as before, right? Like, I get it. They were trying their best, and they were still trying to figure out the way themselves. So although I hope I can do some things differently when I have my own kids, I'm, much more thankful now as an adult than I ever was back then as a kid that they were doing their best to do what's right. Why do they bring this up, right? I bring this up because we often have to go through this learning process in our relationship with God, you see. Especially when we try to study closely the Bible, we might inevitably run into some stories in the Bible that might really challenge what we believe a good and loving God is supposed to do. And when these times happen, it might make us feel confused or uncomfortable. And the story that we'll be studying this week is really one of the prime examples of this story. right? The story of how God destroyed or intended to destroy the world through the flood. Right? One of the most well-known stories in the Bible but also, I think, one of the most misunderstood ones. And it's a story that many non-believers especially use to problematize the character of God in the Bible. So, in this sermon, I doubt I can answer and satisfy all your questions and doubts in 40 minutes, but what I do hope I can help you today is at least understand the logic behind God's actions here. And hopefully, we all can see that in this text is not teaching us that God is this violent, vindictive deity. But He is a God who is truly willing to do anything to create a world where He can partner with His human images. Okay, so let's read together today the passage that we'll be studying, taken from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, to 7, verse 5. Okay, this is the Word of God. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an End of all flesh, for all uh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is three hundred cubits. Its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it with a cubit above. And set Uh, the door of the ark in its side, make it lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, And for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive. On the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Friends, what we just read is certainly not the most straightforward passage to understand in the Bible, and it's one of those passages where we need to see in light of the larger themes of what the Bible wants us to understand. But I think that this passage gives us an important insight of three crucially important things about God's character that we're actually going to see consistently as we study the Bible. Three things that God is committed to doing that I think reveals to us how good our God really is. Okay, Our three points. God will respond to sin. God will rescue through a righteous one. And three, God will provide safe refuge. God will respond to sin, rescue through a refuge one, and provide safe refuge. All right? Hold on. Let's get into it. So, point one God will respond to sin. Let's first look at why such a severe response to sin from God is even necessary in this story. We see it described clearly in verses 11 to 13. Because human sin has corrupted God's good creation. The text repeats this word four times. And in these three verses to describe the state of the world. And it's this word, corrupted. And what this text really wants us to understand is that right now, the world is at the point that it is the complete opposite of what God intended it to be when He created it. In fact, verse 12 there echoes the words of Genesis 1.31 where then God says that He saw the world and behold, it was good, but now God saw the earth that He had made and behold, it is corrupted. I actually like the alternative translation that is this word corrupted, right? Which is ruined. like Creation is now broken beyond repair. And the only way that it will be ever as good is if he starts over. In fact, when we see in verse 13, when it says the Lord was going to destroy all flesh with the earth, the word destroy there is actually the same word that's translated as corrupt in the previous verses or ruin, right? Emphasizing the responsibility of humans for the predicament that they're in, the fact that they need to be destroyed. To paint the picture that what God is about to do to them is actually something that they've been doing to themselves. In other words, God will ruin an already ruined creation. But what was it about that creation that was so bad that God determined that it had to be ruined? Another key word here is emphasized by the text. Violence. Human violence that is so rampant, and normalize all of creation, such that now, all of creation is irreversibly spiraling down this path of self-destruction. And what God chooses to do here in the flood is accelerate the process. You see, this is uh, related to what Tezar preached on last week about the sons of God, that because of their sin, because of their rebellion, it became normalized in creation to aspire, to try, to surpass our creaturely limitations and be like God, right? By some kind of illicit sexual relations in chapter 6, verse 3, which created, if you read chapter 6, verse 4, these mighty men of old, these men of renowned, right? These guys were thought of as these half-God mighty warlords who founded entire civilizations that's predicated on violence and war, right? Creating these cultures where might is right. In fact, a little Bible trivia here. Can anybody guess who is the next mighty man that we'll find in the Bible? And it's not Jesus, okay? It's actually this guy called Nimrod who became the father of Babylon And Assyria, right? The baddest, the absolute worst of the most violent empires in the Bible story. Again, illustrating again a main point of God's narrative about the human's condition that this irreversible descent into self destructive chaos all stems from the proclivity, from the intent, from the intentions of the human heart to displace God, and to do what is right in our own eyes. As it is written, chapter 6, verse 5, right? Every thought and intention of the human heart was only evil continually. This is our problem. And as the sermon last week also pointed out, this violence, this rebellion, and trying to constantly displace God, broke God's heart. The text uses language of deep grief and sadness and emotional pain to describe God's disposition towards the situation. Because actually, the situation is so bad that it requires a corrective response. If you recall in chapter 4, when we studied it, the blood of innocent Abel that was shed cries out to God from the ground to justice. And God banished Cain from the land because of that. So then the story of the flood actually answers the question of what would happen if it's not only one innocent person whose blood was shed. But there are whole civilizations, whole cities that's built and predicated on innocent bloodshed. What would the judge of the earth do if there was actually so much injustice that God would actually be a monster if he tolerated it? Anymore. And the sobering reality, friends, that this text reminds us of is that at that point, God will hand us over to the destructive consequences of our choices. And this is why I find it quite unfortunate that the ESV there you have in your printout in verse 13 translate that phrase as, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. Okay, I don't want to undermine our confidence in our English translations, but there are times when I think, for for the sake of having it easier to read, that they make some interpretive decisions for us. Because in Hebrew, what that phrase literally says is, the end of all flesh is before me. And though it's a much less smooth translation, it makes a world of difference. Because in the literal Hebrew, It's clear that God isn't the subject of this clause, meaning that what the text wants us to see is that the end of all flesh is now presented itself in front of God, in that from God's perspective, he sees that it is now, the world is now at a point of no return, like the end of all flesh is the inevitable outcome of how things were going at that point. So God's decision to bring the flood is not this harsh punishment that's imposed from the outside, because they were going to wipe themselves out anyway. And the image here is that God simply facilitates that to happen sooner by giving them the destruction and disorder that they were already spiraling and going towards. Now, I'm certain that some of us might have some objections and discomfort here. And one of them, at least, is because in the more Western and individualistic mindset, consequences only make sense if there is some kind of causal relationship from the one who made the uh, guilty choice and the consequences that are suffered, right? Like if I, say, get caught for stealing or lying, and now people don't trust me anymore. That makes sense. There is a causal relationship. But from our perspective, from the human perspective, there is no cause-effect relationship between human violence and some cataclysmic flood. Right? That would be like if I got caught stealing and then you know, my family gets COVID or something. It right? has nothing to do with it. Some would say it's karma, but mo- most of us probably say that it's just bad luck. But this is not so from the biblical worldview. Because if you remember Genesis 1, The state of the world, apart from God's ordering, is chaos. Formless and void, it says in chapter 1, verse 2. So, according to the Bible, God didn't just order the world and leave it on autopilot, right? Set and forget. But the narrative is that God is now, at all times, sustaining the world through His power. It's God's power that is right now upholding creation and preventing it to collapse into chaos. So what the flood is, is a portrait of what happens when God suddenly stops doing this on a cosmic scale. There will be a decreation of the life-sustaining order that He established, right? Creation will return to its original chaos. Hence, if we humans insists on running away from God, insists to rebel against God's established order, rather than sending chaos to punish us, God will give us over to the chaos that we have chosen. And He takes away His sustaining power from us. And everything around us begins to descend into chaos. Consequently, friends, in the Bible consequences aren't suffered only by the guilty individuals, but the communities and environments with the guilty will also be affected as creation comes undone around them. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? And, And it took me quite a bit of time to chew on it for a while before I really can, but what I think is intuitive enough for us to all accept is that Somehow, we are all suffering because of someone else's selfish and stupid decisions in the past. While at the same time, someone else will also have to deal with the damage of our sinful choices down the line. And the Bible is saying here that all this is part of God's judgment, God's justice towards sin, and not some negative externalities, consequences that happen to us. Therefore, what's really important here is to remember that while God deeply grieves over all our sinful choices, He actually gives us the agency to choose our own faith. He will honor our choice to pick sin and hand us over to what we have chosen. Romans 1 is clear about this. right? So the portrait of God is not Him going, I've had it with these sinful people in this sinful world. Boom, flood. But it's more like, okay, you don't want me. This is what you want. And God leaves us alone like we want. And things fall apart without Him. Have you seen this in your life? Friends, although this is undeniably a severe thing for God to do, and it's still terrifying, you can never say, that it's unfair it was our choice in fact in the story of the flood this severe act is actually i would argue merciful because if god did let things simply run its course our own violence would have driven the human race into extinction however through god accelerating expediting the consequences through the flood God was able to wipe away the stain of our sin without the human race being completely wiped out in the process. And we are taught for the very first time in the Bible that how God do, does this is by selecting a righteous representative. Just point two. God will rescue through a righteous one. So enter Noah. Okay? His name has been dropped before in Genesis before we get to our story. And so far, we know that he's a really special person. In chapter 5, verse 24, we know that he was the one who was supposed to bring comfort to the world, right? And FYI, this is what Noah's name means, rest. Then we are told in verse 8 that in the middle of creation where everything in everyone's heart was only evil all the time, this Noah guy was the only human who found favor with God. And verse 9 mentions three things about him that made him worthy of, these fav- uh, of this favor, okay? Now, these three attributes are related, but are worth defining individually. So, we have a fuller picture of Noah's character here. So, first of all, it says that Noah was a righteous man. Now, at least for me, I usually associate this word as being generally morally good, right? Like a guy who does good deeds. But as you maybe remember, me mentioning in a previous sermon, that biblically speaking, righteousness is really more of a relational word. Meaning that it it refers to the state of being in right relationship with someone. And this looks different depending on the relationship that we're in, right? For example, we do right by our parents when we take care of them when they're old and sick, for example. And we do right to our employer by working hard when we're on the job. So when it says that a person like Noah is righteous, he doesn't only know, but actually does justice in all the relationship in, in which he stands, especially in his relationship with God. So that's righteous. Then secondly, we have blameless. And we might be tempted to think that this is some kind of moral perfection, but it, what it more directly uh, refers to is the state of being complete. It right? is actually most commonly used in the Bible to talk about an animal without deformity or blemish that's worthy of sacrifice. So when we, when we talk about a human whose character is blameless, it means that this is a complete person without inconsistencies or gaps. Or maybe a helpful way to think about this, this is someone who has ethical integrity. Someone who walks his talk. And lastly, we are told that Noah is someone who walks with God. Now later on in the biblical story, we will see that this involves, ultimately, is this living relationship with God of trust. Whereby we choose to follow his wisdom instead of relying on our understanding. But more immediately, right, who was the only other person so far? We were told walked with God in the Book of Genesis. Right? Noah's ancestor, Enoch. And what happened to him? In chapter five, verse twenty-four. In a huge list of a ton of people who ended up dying, Enoch was the only one who was delivered from death. Now, guess what's going to happen to Noah? He's going to be saved from judgment. And the narrative, at least at this point, suggests that he deserves it because he's the kind of guy that God is looking for. He was the kind of partner that Adam was created to be and that we, as images of God, every single day fail to be. I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if I can go a day without failing to do right by some relationship in my life or acting somehow inconsistently or thinking inconsistently to what I claim I believe Or trusting myself without God. And each of these unrighteous, compromised, and selfish choice that we make draws us further away from God and closer to violence and death. That's why, friends, none of us, nobody can justifiably demand that they be delivered to from death. But the good news that we are being introduced to through the story of Noah is this, that God's MO, God's habit, is to give the chance for someone to do righteous and do right by their relationship with God. And if this person succeeds, their righteousness can somehow count for a bunch of other people that they're representing. And we see this in the story of Noah, don't we? We are not told that Noah's whole family was righteous, only him. In fact, we'll see in a couple of chapters that at least one of his sons was extremely unrighteous, but they all get to be saved based on the righteousness of Noah. However, for the salvation to be enjoyed by Noah and those he represents, Noah must demonstrate his righteousness through this act of self-sacrificial obedience. We see in the story that Noah does this By building this ark that God instructed him to make. Now, I'm sure that most of us picture this ark of some kind of giant boat, right? And Noah is the captain steering the ship. At least, you know, all our children's Bibles and that rich guy in Hong Kong imagines it this way. But the meaning of this word, ark, actually has nothing to do with boats or ships. Ark, actually, comes from the Latin word that means chest or box. And in fact, the Hebrew word that's translated as ark here is an uncommon word, only happens in two places in the Bible, and most scholars believe that it comes from an Egyptian word that means sarcophagus or like the sacred box shrine. And I bring that up to highlight the fact that building this giant box would sound as crazy to Noah as it does to us. It wouldn't be obvious to Noah or the original readers how making this ark would be helpful until the ark itself was completed. I mean, the scale of the project, right? The time and effort necessary is beyond comprehension. Noah basically had to drop everything that was, was going on in his life to make this thing. For life, right? And notice in chapter 7, verse 1 to 5, That God even told Noah to go into the ark seven days before it started raining. So, despite whatever reservations that Noah had, and I'm sure there were many, right? The text emphasizes in chapter 6, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 5, that Noah did all that he was commanded. See, Noah demonstrated. His righteousness. That's why in chapter 7, verse 5, it says, Now I know that you are righteous. Now it's demonstrated that Noah does his relation, does justice to his relationship with God and fully trusts in his Lord, obeying his command no matter what the cost. Now, hopefully, if you're a regular here in CCC, some light bulbs might be flickering at this point because the story of Noah. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Does God ever do this again? Let someone's righteous obedience save a bunch of other people? Provide someone who is consistently in right relationship with his heavenly Father, always walking with God and is ultimately delivered from death? One who only does what is the Father's will and only says what the Father says. Has God ever given us a better Noah who is willing to give up anything and leave the glory He's had since creation with the Father and obeyed unto death, even death on the cross? Brothers and sisters, the salvation that Jesus gave us is better than than the one Noah was able to manage. Because we will soon see in a couple of chapters that Noah will fail epically too, as we all have. All Noah was able to accomplish at this point was to keep the human race going so that God's plan can keep going. But Jesus actually gave us the final solution. A way that not only saves some, but opens the opportunity for all to be cleansed for good the problem that leads us to destruction in the first place, a way to remedy the continuously evil and wicked intentions of the human heart. So like Noah's family, who probably thought that their dad has lost their mind, we are saved by trusting in by trusting in Christ's righteous work of obedience. By clinging to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply through the cross I cling. Friends, we can never be righteous enough to escape the chaos and destruction that we have doomed ourselves to. We can never do the damage that our sins have done. There is really no going back. And our only hopes, friends, is actually to take refuge and shelter under what God has provided and watch and wait as He makes everything new. Just point three, just briefly, God will provide, save refuge. Now, let's go back to the instructions of the ark uh, for the moment in chapter six, verse 14 to 21, right? I hope if you skim through this, all of us realize that this is nowhere near enough destruction to create such a massive thing, right? No one must have known more. But the narrative does spend quite a bit of verses to tell us what's going on. Like, he definitely could have said less, therefore what we're told is definitely not just trivia. And, you know, the nerdy side of me would love to go line by line and discuss all the interesting connections I found while preparing the sermon, but it's a lot of stuff. So let me just give you what the main point is trying to communicate is, right? That Noah's Ark is a type of a holy sanctuary through which God provides refuge for his images from chaos, right? And the scholars have observed this because The wording of the instructions and the specific features God tells Noah to include in this thing is very intentionally worded because we're supposed to connect the ark to all of the other main sacred spaces in the Old Testament, right? Namely, Solomon's temple, the tabernacle, and the Garden of Eden. Like the proportions of this space, for example, is exactly three times, I mean, uh, three times bigger than the tabernacle. And the fact that it's supposed to have three tiers, like the tabernacle and the temple, and it had doors and windows, like Solomon's temples. All of that stuff tries to map closely on the instructions of all of these architectural structures that are given in the Bible, which itself is a symbolic version of the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you read the descriptions of the animals in, chapter, uh, in verse 19 to 20 of chapter 6, it maps closely onto the wording of how God created the animals to fill creation in chapter one. And verse 21 rounds out the image of the garden where it portrays as ark where every sort of food is stored and is available for consumption for everyone. Okay? So a place where humans live in peace with animals, where they don't need to worry about food, right? What does that sound like? And so what these instructions are trying to allude to, and the biblical authors, if you read the Old Testament, loves to do this. It's trying to tell us that the ark is this kind of place, like the Garden of Eden, like the tabernacle, like the temple where God's presence through the Holy Spirit provides pres- protection from the chaos and disorder that's going on outside. The tabernacle provides Refuge from a chaotic wilderness. The temple provides refuge from the chaos of the godless nations. The garden provides a special refuge from the chaos of the dry land. Point is, God wants to protect us in this holy kind of place, while sin outside defeats itself. Now, you may be thinking, okay, cool, that's interesting, but... What does that have to do with me? So if we do a little more biblical theology and get to the New Testament, what is, according to the apostles, currently the temple of God? Right? It's not any strict physical location anymore, but Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 clearly tells us that we are, right? We are collectively described as living stones that are joined together to be the holy temple of God. But also, Paul even tells us in First Corinthians chapter 3, that we each are individually God's temple, where the Holy Spirit dwells. So this is how it is relevant to us. That now, after Christ, when the true and better Noah has appeared, we don't have to go into God's protective refuge, but it actually comes to us. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes the temple safe and holy and made order out of chaos in the beginning and was hovering over the ark as it was in this chaotic water now dwells personally with us. So if we do trust in the true and better Noah, we don't need to fear the chaos that is rampant in the world around us. The Holy Spirit ensures us that we will not be consumed by God's judgment. And we too will be renewed and be part of this new creation that is free from sin. This is the hope that we are looking forward to. This is the peace God wants us to have in this refuge. So to summarize, friends, God is not this harsh, vindictive deity, right? He's not out there waiting just to smite us for our sins. Rather, God actually sends His Son to give us a way out. However, at the same time, He will give us over to the chaos we choose for ourselves if we continue to sin unrepentantly. So we must all ask ourselves, right? What does It looks like specifically for us to leave the chaos of our sin and enter the ark. What does doing justice by our relationship with God look like? And what does trusting God practically involve? It's going to look different for everyone. But at heart, it's this constant removal of ourselves from that which causes us to sin and choosing to draw near to the Holy Spirit. Trusting the God who says that this is truly the only place where we'll find true and lasting relief from the anxiety and destruction of the chaos that we see in our lives. Really, finding for yourself what it means to obey Christ and see that Christ's light is easy and His yoke is light. Trusting that He is the one who will give us Noah, give us rest. So if you're feeling overwhelmed today, if you're sick and tired of the chaos around you, but you can't seem to find a way out, I tell you today, friends, that this refuge is being offered to you right now. The ark has been built. The doors are open. And if you renounce your sin that has caused the chaos in your life, and if you reconcile your relationship with God by trusting in the forgiveness that He is offering to us through Christ, we will not be overcome by the chaos. We will survive the consequences of our sin. And we too can enter into this relationship of trust with our Lord and make it to this creation that He will renew. You want that? Will you trust Him? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, who is the Lord over the storms. Lord, you have patiently bared our sins. We understand, Lord, that each and every thought and intentions of our hearts that are evil grieves you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us still the chance today to come back to you, to renew our relationship of trust in you. And I pray, Father, that you send us your Holy Spirit to really make us at peace when we are obeying you. Make clear to us how our sins have caused chaos. Make clear to us how following the world's way of sin creates chaos in our lives so that we may renounce it and helpfully run the refuge that you have built for us. In Jesus' name we pray.